Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. For a while now, we've been exploring the challenges to the historical reliability of the Bible, and now we feel it's time to pause and take stock of the conversations we've had so far. So in this episode, we go back over the insights from the past few episodes, identifying the connections and contrasts between the different people we've interviewed. Where do we agree? Where do we disagree? If you've been following the series so far, then maybe you also have your own views. If so, then do let us know using Spotify's polling software or just sending an email. Either way, I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, it's just Austin and me. Hi, Austin. Hello. We don't have a guest to interview in this episode because we want to just review all the episodes we've done so far and share some of our own thoughts on what all the different people have said. We've interviewed, how many people have we interviewed now? Five? Yeah, that's right. So first of all, it was Professor John Goldingay, and then we had Professor Hugh Williamson, and then we had Professor Ian Proven, all three Old Testament professors. Mm -hmm. Then we interviewed Seth Herringer, who's actually a systematic theologian who's thinking about biblical scholarship. That's right, yeah. And then we interviewed Matthew J. Thomas, who is, he is a sort of professor of biblical studies, and he, he talked to us a little bit about the method as well of historical criticism. So, so we start with John Goldingay. Yeah, John kind of kicked off our, our discussions um, thinking about the Old Testament, um, thinking quite a lot about questions of what matters when we think, what matters most for kind of theology when we're thinking about the kind of historicity of events or things in the Old Testament yeah, and he, he basically started right from the outset with challenging the whole idea that we should be concerned to try and prove that the Old Testament is historically reliable against people who say that it isn't. Because he he sort of tried to say that people believe in Christianity or disbelieve in Christianity for reasons that are very little to do with the historical verifiability of the Old Testament. That's where he started, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it was an interesting kind of take on what is it that's significant to people in their own faith when it comes to these texts, and what is it about these texts that kind of holds theological weight for them, Yeah, which is, I think, was quite different from, I mean, a lot of people would think, you know, all these things have to be exactly historically ha happened as they're written, otherwise we can't trust any of it. But he, he has quite a different sense of that. Yeah, he does. And I, I wonder how far you can take it. I mean, I, I do probably agree with him that you won't win a lot of converts to Christianity by writing arguments that the Old Testament is historically reliable or that the Bible in general is historically reliable. There's one or two. There's always one or two. But by and large, people make their decisions about whether they believe or not for, for other reasons. But on the other hand, I do think that those who are Christians want to be reassured that they can trust the, the scriptures, the sacred texts that as Christians they submit to. So I think the question of historical reliability does become a matter of concern at that level, I guess. And I don't think John Goldinger was saying that it wasn't, but I'm just asking myself, where does it become important to know whether or not the events recorded in the Bible actually happened? And it becomes important if you're a Christian who's trying to live by them, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I typically think it's especially difficult in those areas where it seems like, because the, the big question that I think often people don't ask themselves is, 
is this text trying to say that this was a historical event that happened, right? Um, so we have a lot of things in the Old Testament. I mean, even thinking about the sort of earliest chapters of Genesis, right? Yeah. In what sense could those be in a historical event? I mean, most theologians would say it doesn't make sense to say that creation is an event because it's sort of, this is something that's happening that's kind of beyond any description that time is coming into existence as part of this. So, you know, whatever is being depicted here, is that an event? Or, you know, questions about Jonah or um, yeah. Job, these kinds of things. But beyond that, you do have a lot of texts that are very clearly seem to be saying this this happened. Yeah. And if it didn't happen, then it raises questions of whether the Bible is reliable because it's saying that it did. Even if the event didn't matter, the fact that the event is being, you know, depicted as a certain thing matters, I think, yes. for, for people's faith. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're going to base your own faith on things that are purported to have happened. It sort of matters because, you know, if I'm going to preach from a passage about Moses parting the Red Sea, for example, I would feel disingenuous if I if I actually thought Moses never parted the Red Sea. It's just what mm-hmm. it was just made up by somebody later. It would change the sort of message that I could give to the people I was preaching to, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. We got a strong sense, I think it was from uh, Professor Golden Gay, of the thing that really needs to have happened is like the resurrection of Christ. So kind of New Testament stuff is the most important. But yeah. a lot of the New Testament, a lot of people in the New Testament, including Jesus, speak of a lot of Old Testament events as if they happened. Including Jonah, actually, which is which lands you in complications if, if you think that Jonah doesn't pretend to be a historical book. You know, many biblical scholars... Uh, for the uninitiated, many biblical scholars would argue that the book of Jonah, unlike all of the other prophet prophets, is actually was written as a fictional story to tell a moral and theological point. Even though, of course, Jonah as a person is testified to as existing elsewhere. It mentions him in, in Second Kings, doesn't it? Jonah, son of Atim. Mm-hmm. Maybe he wrote that fiction or whatever. But then Jesus comes along and says... For as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be, don't remember, be something. Yeah, and it is, I I do think, one of the reasons that scholars will say that about Jonah is that it's, you know, such a highly stylized text. You know, it's very clearly extremely poetic, all of these kinds of things. But I do think it raises kind of tricky questions because of how Jonah is treated elsewhere in Scripture. And then you can see how these, the reason why so many people see all this tied together, right, that you can't just... Take away that text yes. and take away that text, and and it doesn't really cause any problems. There's a lot of a slippery slope feeling there with a lot of people, isn't there? Like, if you start to say, "Oh, maybe Jonah didn't actually happen," then then where do you draw the line? Where do you where do you have some solid ground? You're going to end up questioning the resurrection at some point. So just this is dangerous territory. That's the sort of feeling you'll get from some people, won't you? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And and so it's very typical for people to just say, let's just not let's not question any of it because, you know, that this is tied together. And I think that's part of why I mean, you know, obviously biblical scholars really struggle with that because they have seen so much archaeological evidence and other things that it suggests, you know, things are more complicated than they might seem to the um, the average reader of the the Bible. And so I think the really interesting question is like, how can you kind of bring this in for, you know, average Christians to learn from these scholars, but also how can we think well as Christians and as the church maybe about, about how these things go together? I mean, 
I think the big question that it raises for me talking to both John and Hugh is I tend to think that there's a lot less certainty all around when it comes to deciding, determining the historicity of things. And I think that that, on the one hand, I would say, I don't really feel like we can prove that most of these things didn't happen. But also, I don't think that Christians need to walk around saying, I know for sure that this did happen, and I can prove (laughs) that it did. I feel like a lot of times, all of that is, you know, somewhat beside the point for a certain amount of what's important. Yeah, for sure. And then Hugh, Hugh Williamson was actually, it seems to me Hugh Williamson was a bit more confident about the results of biblical scholarship to to pass judgment on historicity, wasn't he? Whereas John Goldingay several times pointed out that actually within the guild of experts in Old Testament scholarship, there's no real consensus. They don't really all agree on which bits of the Old Testament are historical and which aren't. And so if one Old Testament professor, just because he's an Old Testament professor, says oh, I think this did actually happen, or I think this did actually happen. He's not necessarily representing the consensus of the experts. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the consensus of the experts changes over time. And, again, the consensus of the experts isn't, you know, we have scientific proof of this. It's, in general, you know, this is where the evidence points. Yeah, this is what it looks like at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, but there's a margin of error there that's large enough to say... I mean, a certain amount of agnosticism about that is at least maybe warranted often. And I think it's interesting because, was it Hugh that, did you ask, well, if we can't know for sure, then why can't we just say, well, then I want to say that I believe it happened. I don't don't think Hugh would have said that. Or did, do you mean somebody else? No, you said that, and then he said, no, no, you can't. Um, Oh, that's right. He said, yeah, he was very cautious of that argument. Like, oh, if the experts can't say for certain that it didn't happen, then I'm going to go ahead and believe that it did happen. He didn't like Mm. that. I don't remember why he didn't like that. Perhaps he just thought that was a bit cheap. Yeah, I I actually can't remember what the exact logic of what he said was either, but I didn't fully fully find it compelling because I do think there's... I I mean, I do... On the one hand, you can see how it it feels unfair for the believer to just say, well, I've decided that it did happen and I don't need to ask any more questions then. But also weird to say, no, you can't believe that it happened if we can't know either way. Well, the thing is, I, I remember there's a line somewhere in the philosopher's or in Kierkegaard where he says, if you want to be sure that you've understood a Bible passage correctly, then you have to wait until the very last academic book has been published on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And Kant says something similar, right? That, yeah. that sort of faith is uh, belief in the findings of biblical scholars. Yeah, because because the academics are going to keep debating these things and it's always going to be in some ways open for debate. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead is still open for debate among New Testament scholars, but Mm. it's not open for debate for those who have submitted to the teachings of Christianity and joined the Christian church. And and so there you, you have an interesting dynamic. I think the important thing just to remember is that we're not saying that we can prove that Jesus rose from the dead, that it is something that faith assents to, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's, I think, the struggle for a lot of contemporary Christians is, you know, if a lot of people on the skeptical side are talking in terms of proof, uh, they want to talk in terms of proof as well. And in many ways, faith stands on different epistemic conditions. You know, this this is a different kind of thing that's being said. And I think people get lost in that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What do we think of 
Professor Ian Proven's contribution, he took quite a strong stance to the to the other end of the spectrum from Hugh Williamson, which is curious because Hugh Williamson was actually Ian Proven's doctoral supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't mean just because you you did your doctorate under somebody doesn't mean you come to agree with them on your, on everything. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, we both studied with with Ian Proven, and um, I think he has a strong sense that we can trust a lot of these texts, which I think is infectious. I mean, I remember studying with him and thinking, "Wow, like this is uh, really compelling." A lot of a lot of what he has to say about these things, and and I do agree with. I mean, a certain amount of why I think is compelling, and so. Which is why it's so interesting how much I then end up disagreeing with things that Ian thinks. Because he says things like, we all have philosophical assumptions that we bring to the task. You know, we have these broader frameworks that are sort of determining how we employ the, the historical methods and how we decide these things. And that's often the determining factor when someone's saying, that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily that, that the evidence proves that. Um, it's just that this broader framework they're bringing to bear points them in direction of denying it. The difficulty I have, like Ian Proven, yeah, he was one of the first people to teach me that we all that we don't ever come to the Bible with a blank slate, as it were, just reading what's on the page. There's no such thing as immaculate perception. Uh, it was a funny little ditty that <laughs> Ian Proven himself didn't say, but I learned somewhere else. But then I find myself sometimes wondering, well, what are the philosophical presuppositions that Ian Proven himself is bringing to the text then, and is he going to be clear mm. about them? You know, that's right. And that's where it's interesting because he he really sides quite heavily with a kind of Reformation era reading, yeah. which itself, to my mind, was not very philosophically aware always, though you would know more about that uh, with Sylvian's research. My, my <laughs> wife, Sylvian, yeah, did her PhD on the Reformation, and she, she actually picked a little-known reformer called Peter Martavimili precisely because he was one of the most philosophically trained of all of the reformers and he he was yeah. able to talk intelligently about Aristotle and, and that kind of thing. So you're right, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, they didn't care much for philosophy and they wouldn't have cared much. They wouldn't have taken it as an insult to be told they were not philosophically aware because <laughs> they were like, we shouldn't be philosophically aware, we're, we're theologians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they saw that as a positive thing, Yeah, which is why it's so interesting to hear, I think, Ian Proven talk about the need for being really aware of your philosophical presuppositions and then drawing all you know, these figures that were basically trying to say, stop stop thinking about philosophy altogether, let's read the Bible. Well, sometimes it can be just a defensive maneuver. It's, it's like, you know, you have your presuppositions, I have mine, so don't question my presuppositions. In other words, just let me believe what I want to believe and I'll let you believe what you want to believe and let's not let's not try and prove to each other that each other is wrong. It's sort of where, where it can go, can't it? Yeah, it absolutely can, which I think interestingly connects with Seth Herringer, who we talked to. This didn't come through as much in our discussion, and I got the sense in our discussion that he's maybe changed his views on this, but in his book, he draws on a lot of really postmodern figures and seems to construct a fairly relativistic argument along the lines of what you've said. Yeah. Right? So he kind of he kinds of ends up saying, you know, we all have these presuppositions, and so really we should just lean into that and simply develop our own reading according to our own presuppositions, and just everybody should be able to do that. Which he didn't really say in, in our discussion with him, but uh, do you feel like that's what he says in his book? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I was, somebody got in touch with me about, about Seth's 
episode recently and they said they didn't particularly like it and the reason they didn't like it, I'm just trying to find. Clause one, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Clause two, scientists and historians tend to say that the Gospels, that, that people don't rise from the dead. Therefore, I don't believe anything at all that scientists or historians say. Was it, that was his caricature of what Seth Herringer was saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I certainly think it can get pushed quite far. And a lot of, I think a lot of what Seth is saying is is largely accurate in terms of the scope of, of the impact of our kind of broader frameworks, uh, what, whatever that is, right? So our kind of philosophical presuppositions, this mm. kind of broader set of beliefs that we bring to bear on the methods, yeah. you know? And, he, and he's drawing on, you know, largely non-Christian scholars who are making this argument about the historical method in general. Yeah, yeah. And saying, you know, we're not, this isn't an objective thing that we're doing. This isn't a science. And of course, the the you know, the figures that developed these historical methods, which he talks about, they saw it as much more of an art, right? So there's a strong aesthetic piece to this. Yeah. What we, you know, we're not proving what happened in the past, but we're sort of putting together a compelling picture, compelling story, and everybody has different reasons for doing this. And so that can get pushed really far in the like apologetic direction of like, oh, do you believe that people can be resurrected or not? Therefore, you're going to have a totally different story. I don't know how much Seth actually would want to push it in that direction, though that's kind of what we talked about. But just in a general sense of we're going to come up with different solutions based on our presuppositions when we do history. And so why can't our presuppositions be faith-based? What, you know, what's the, that's no less objective necessarily, um, is kind of what he's getting at, which there, a certain amount of that I think is is pretty spot on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not uh, I'm not sure that whether or not that's a fair representation of what Seth is saying, but I I, mm. I think sometimes I found Seth a little bit quick to jump to the conclusion that we can just go and do science in a Christian way and go and do history in a Christian way w- without needing to bother with the way that science and history are done by non Christians. He didn't seem to to see much room for sort of convergence or sharing the same world and therefore being able to point to and talk about the same things in the same way. I don't know if that's a fair criticism. Yeah, I think I get the sense, again, that since writing his book, he's maybe come more to the sense the side of, of wanting to engage that. I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think that there's something yeah. there about he's tended to say... The Christians should just get on with doing their own version of these things and not worry about, you know, what other people are doing their version of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas I do tend to want to say, I think I think that the, the task has to be how do we engage together in constructive conversation about this stuff with, you know, scholars who are already doing this um, in their own particular ways yeah. without letting their own philosophical assumptions control the discourse entirely. Yes, exactly. I think you can deny that anybody approaches the Bible from a neutral point of view, but that's not the same as denying that we can talk meaningfully to each other and engage in sort of rational argument with each other, right? We're still in a public domain. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead is a is a legitimate question to ask and a legitimate thing to investigate from the perspective of history whether you're a Christian or not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and so then that raises, you know, all of these interesting questions about, um, I mean, one of the things that Seth, I think, really helpfully highlights is that we do have a lot of scholars who have said, yeah, hey, let's, you know, let's use these methods 
um, like as Christians, let's pick up these methods, let's use them, let's engage with the general academic discourse, but let's do it in a way that tries to push it towards our kind of theology. And Seth is saying, well, the methods already sort of militate against where you're trying to push them. So maybe there's a disconnect there. It's like a Trojan horse problem, you know, like I'm going to use this atheist methodology and try and make it lead to Christian conclusions, but maybe the methodology is the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And that's, um, and so then, it, and and not to say, oh, any, any methodology that doesn't, you know, give us the conclusions we want, we should change. But any methodology, if it's not, if it's already a really subjective methodology, and it has a lot of philosophical assumptions that are questionable anyways, um, then it's a good space to say, well, we should revisit those, right? Yeah, we should Let, let's, let's go and ask again, what, what presuppositions led to the conclusion that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or couldn't possibly have risen from the dead? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that's quite helpful, but it's still, I think, so, you know, Ian Proven kind of gets us maybe is, again, this sense of, well, we all have our different presuppositions, but I don't see Ian pushing into, well, what are the presuppositions in the methods themselves that you're using? He has a sense that we have these historical methods, and if we used them right the way the reformers would, Maybe they'll get us to, you know, something like the the right reading. Trouble is, I sometimes feel that he doesn't actually believe that he has his own presuppositions when he approaches the Bible. Because he'll say things like, in the interview we did with him, he said at one point that his approach to scripture is what every clear-headed thinker in the tradition has also had. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, like... That's not that's not a rational argument to just say everybody who's clear-headed agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And I mean obviously he's very, you know, he's a great wit and he, yes. he he does but there is there is a strong sense there that he's kind of he's landed on this one's the right this one's the right approach. Yeah. And it, and he likes to see examples of it in the tradition, but I think it would be hard to say that that is a majority view in the tradition if you were looking at a kind of continuity of how Christians think about scripture. I mean, this is where, you know, we asked him about kind of Christological readings of the Old Testament, which are basically universal in the Christian tradition. Yes. And that's something that he he rejects, which is, is quite significant. It maybe sounds kind of niche to people who don't think about that often, but I, I do think that's one of the kind of central pillars of Christian uh, reading of scripture throughout history. Well, that you can find Jesus in the Old Testament essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, kind of Christological readings of, so, you know, something like the the Passover, that kind of thing, right? And not just saying, oh, this prefigures Christ, but that in some sense this is Christ, right? So you get patristic theologians who say the angel of death passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts because the blood of that lamb participated in the blood of Christ. Um, That that was an actual Christological um, thing happening. Yeah, that's right, because he didn't just say, oh, finding Jesus in the Old Testament is just another way of reading scripture with another set of philosophical presuppositions to me. He didn't say that. He said, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, Which suddenly all of this language of, oh, we all just come with different presuppositions, that seems to have gone out the window. And now it's a question of some somebody's reading scripture right, the other person's reading scripture wrong, the person's reading scripture right is me. Yeah, that's right. And that—that that is these discussions, I think, so easily jump into that. So most people, if you pushed them, would say, yes, you know, we all have our presuppositions, we all have our frameworks, we all have an axe to grind about something, but also I'm right and these other people are wrong yeah. um, and do it this way and this is definitely. And then you're like, but you just said. And I think that it's an interesting thing to think about for consistency's sake, 
you know, should he only ever say, well, that's, you know, that's an alternative framework and here's why it's doing that and yeah. I couldn't, you know, prove to you that it's wrong, but I don't do it for these, you know, these reasons. It's a, a cumbersome way to proceed. I mean, but. we could take that as an example, right? Finding Jesus or finding the Trinity, you know, in, in the Old Testament, the methodological sort of presuppositions that object to that are basically, well, nobody who wrote the Old Testament believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, right? So therefore they couldn't possibly have been meaning the Trinity by that. But then if you respond to that, you can just say, well, but if the Trinity is real, and we believe that for other reasons, then it wouldn't be surprising to see little hints and evidences of that in what the Old Testament writers saw and described, because what they saw and described is reality, not just their own authorial intention, as it were, right? Yeah, that's right. And this is where you get into, especially with someone like Ian Proven, you know, he's tended to be fairly averse to the role of metaphysics in these questions. Yeah. And so he's after authorial intent, whereas probably someone like me or a lot of more kind of traditional approaches are, metaphysics plays a big role. So we want to say, well, what's the nature of reality? Uh, if God is triune, then he's always been triune, right? And so then metaphysically, you know, we read these texts in light of what we believe to be the case about reality. So the God who acted in these Old Testament texts was Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, whether the people writing these texts knew it or not. And so that sort of authorizes a, a certain kind of reading based on broader arguments about like, well, what's what's the nature of reality? Um, and so you, you get, you know, on the other side that Proven, I think, is more on, it's much less metaphysical. We don't want to focus that much on, we maybe can't make arguments about what the nature of reality is. Instead, we need to figure out what these authors intended to tell yeah. us, and that's kind of where we But start. then what it ends up doing is leading to a sort of what's known as a methodological atheism, right? It's like, or a methodological naturalism. It's like, we actually have to presuppose that the, the God described in the Old Testament isn't the Trinitarian God, because that's the only way we can make sense of the authorial intention there. And so there's still a presupposition there. It's just a different one. That's right. And this is, you know, interesting, I think equally interesting if we think about the readings of the Gospels, where essentially you have to treat Jesus as just a human, just like every other human, even if you want to say, but then in the end he was resurrected and it turns out he was divine, but basically he's only divine at that yes. point. Um, <laughs> and we can't think back Christologically and say, well, how does this impact what we think go, about go his human life? It. I don't know. Did you ever watch that movie Sixth Sense? Uh, yeah. It's it's an old movie now, and there may be people who haven't watched it. It was quite famous at the time. But I think that was one of the clearest examples for me of how a little plot twist in the last five minutes of a movie changes the way you see everything that came before. All of a sudden, what you find out about that character right at the end, you suddenly in your mind, you're going back over the whole movie and thinking, oh, that's why that happened. That's why he did that. That's why, you know. And I think that's what something like Jesus being divine does to the Bible. You know, when you suddenly realize that Jesus is divine, which in the history of the church, they realized it before we were born, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then you can go back and read the Bible a different way. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And that's something that most biblical scholars would really oppose, right? So most, yeah. especially kind of in the realm of historical Jesus scholarship, even really committed Christians 
who do that scholarship, they're usually really opposed to saying, we can't go back and read the Gospels differently now that we say, you know, say oh, it turns out that Jesus was divine. We, you know, we have to have this sense of this kind of everything about his human life was just, yeah. you know, very natural and normal. And then we can tack on that we believe in the resurrection if we want Well, to. I guess if we want to be charitable towards that approach, what we could say is that they don't want you to give a spoiler that spoils that last five-minute revelation, right? <laughs> they want you to watch Sixth Sense without knowing the, the truth about that main character at the end so that you have the same experience that we had, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is a very charitable way of saying that. Yeah, the, I think the real trick, though, is that, you know, I haven't seen The Sixth Sense in forever, but I well, you can take a, think, take a different example. There's lots of movies. That... <laughs> well, but yeah, so this is, but I think like the movie that precedes that, you can look back and say, oh, actually that makes sense of what I saw. Whereas what a lot of scholars end up saying about Jesus, if they tack on that he's divine, that doesn't actually make sense of what they've said of him. In many ways, it's at odd with the things they've already said of him. Oh, very interesting. Um, and so I think that's where you end up yeah. with some really tricky questions. Yeah, okay, yeah. So where does that where does this leave us on 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 thinking about the historicity of the Bible? Yeah, so I think we we didn't talk much about our discussion with Matt Thomas yet, but I thought that that was a really interesting space where he helped us delve more into what are the elements of the historical method? What are the kinds of questions? You know, it's a sort of a bunch of methods yeah. doing different things. And I think that that's one place that's really useful is to say there's a bunch of tools here. A lot of them are great. And so what? how do we think well about those things? This isn't just like take it all or leave it. And then yeah, asking, we don't have to be absolutist about it. We can be like, we don't have to either wholesale accept or wholesale reject the way secular historical studies is done. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I really appreciate that about Matt. I think he's, you know, really well engaged in kind of doing a much more nuanced project and engaging with that. That That is a, is a good path forward to the kind of thing that I think both of us are after, which is what does a constructive dialogue look like that has a genuine seat at the table for people of faith and people not of faith who, you know, want to think well about these things? Yeah, that a Christian Bible scholar can go and engage in biblical scholarship with the secular world and in, in the secular space without feeling like they are either hiding their their beliefs under the table or without feeling like they're sacrificing their beliefs in order to talk meaningfully with with other scholars about it. I think that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and and I think that that requires a lot of, I mean, it requires those scholars to be extremely self-aware. They have obviously need to be ready and willing to think critically about their own faith and their own beliefs that they're bringing to the table there. Yeah. But I do think that figuring out what that would look like where you have, you know, a no less scholarly um, agenda happening here, but one that is more aware of the ways in which people are bringing different frameworks and presuppositions to bear and that none of those are neutral. Yeah. And so therefore they, they all deserve a kind of space. And how can that kind of conversation carry forward? Because I think what I wouldn't want to see is just we argue that we need to develop a Christian approach to all these things and those will be published in, you know, their own Christian, by their own Christian publishers and those people will only work at these Christian schools and they will never discuss. That becomes kind of sectarian, right? You just have all of the Christian Bible scholars sitting over there with their presuppositions and they never read the stuff by the secular people or are read by the secular people because the presuppositions are just so different that there's no point of contact. That's what we what we don't want. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's but right. But I did just fear that that was where it was headed with Seth Herringer's proposal, as it were. 
Yeah, it certainly it gives off that 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 vibe. I think a certain amount. Whereas I think, yeah, ideally we're looking for, you know, just. I mean, my what the thing that I have have often wanted to say in this is, all historians I think would do well to be much more aware of the philosophical ideas mm. that are driving what they're doing. And if they were, and they could converse well about all of those things, we could get a lot further. And they might do well to be much less certain about the results, at least in how they talk about their results. You get a lot of rhetoric out there from historians about this definitely happened. This was the case. Jesus was definitely this. This didn't happen. And and that's yeah. you know none of that is being proven, but it's you know it's being argued with a certain amount of probability. It's a bit short-sighted to to be so confident about these things. If if you study the history of history, as it were, the history of people writing history, especially the history of the Bible, you find people saying crazy things with great certainty in the 19th century. But then they're not, they're not, they're just not thinking who's going to be reading me 150 years from now and thinking that what I said is utterly absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And then I, you know, all of this, I think, connects to bigger questions about like how does you know theology as a discipline engage with biblical scholarship? Yes, and I think that you know that's part of what we're we're kind of after as theologians is it's hard sometimes for us to engage fully with this scholarship because that because of exactly these sorts of issues. Um, and so we've also had this space where you know theologians are siloed from biblical scholarships in the academy for quite a while. Um, because they're just doing totally different things, yeah. which is very strange. And the temptation can be, you know, I'm a theologian, I want to engage with the Bible, and I want to do so responsibly. I want to use the Bible all the time in my theology. But the temptation can be for me to just pick one biblical scholar who happens to agree with my theological position and say, according to biblical scholarship, this verse means <laughs> this and this, and then cite that one biblical scholar. And I'm taking advantage there of the fact that because scholars don't tend to agree on many of these things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a strange thing where you're kind of, you want to look legitimate, so you want to engage with biblical scholarship, but A, there's a lot of biblical scholarship yeah. and no one can keep up with all of it, um, But they and they disagree, and so you just either pick one or you ignore all of it. Um, I think, you know, a certain number of theologians do something like that. Yeah. And, and ideally, you know, if these discourses could be much more informative of one another, I think that would... Um, be useful for all of us because what we have to offer the historians is you know much more awareness of the kind of philosophical and hermeneutical issues at play but we haven't often had been able to offer that because we you know kind of siloed in our disciplines yeah i mean we 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 end up we want to move from what happened in the bible and whether or not it's historically accurate we want to move from that to so what does that mean about what we as christians believe and how we as christians live today and that's that jump, that hermeneutical jump that we as theologians are always aiming at making. Yep, absolutely. Cool. So where are we headed next? Yeah, so I think we're, we have some uh, New Testament scholars to talk to a bit more, a kind of broader set of, of issues, um, and then some historians maybe move beyond Scripture to think about kind of other challenges to history in general. That history poses, yeah. History poses a lot of challenges, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but on this podcast, challenges are welcome. So that's right. We love the challenges. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.